This is the Millennial Millionaire Through Real Estate Podcast. They finally brought us one, which was a 20-unit property. In reality, it was five uh, fourplexes, uh, but it was being treated as 20 units, and that's how, how we uh, took it on and operated it. But it was, it was, it was scary as hell. Um, you know, we didn't have the money. We had never raised money. We had to raise uh, 350000 uh, and we had no clue on how we were going to do that. You're listening to the Millennial Millionaire Through Real Estate Podcast, where we discuss tangible tips, tricks, and best practices for becoming financially free. The show is designed for people who want to either start real estate investing or for those who want to scale their real estate business. What's going on, everyone? This is Jonathan Farber, your host of the Millennial Millionaire Through Real Estate Podcast. I hope you're all well and healthy. For any first-time listeners, thanks for being here. The goal of this show is to explore ways to become financially free through real estate or to increase passive cash flow through real estate. A little background on myself. I work in corporate America at a software company. My side hustle is real estate. I currently own eight rental units and looking to add more this spring. I have house hacked, bird, flipped, and done short-term rentals to name a few strategies. My current focus is 20 to 30 unit apartment buildings in Ohio and Kentucky. I love to network and learn. So if you'd like to connect further, feel free to find me on LinkedIn, Facebook, or BiggerPockets. All right, guys, got another awesome episode today with Jeff Greenberg. Jeff is from Camarillo or Camarillo, California. For any California investors out there, please uh, correct me or not make fun of me too bad for that. Um, we first connected from an article that he wrote about student housing. He does a lot of writing and this is an area where he's investing obviously, but, um, it was something I was curious about because a lot of my property or not a lot, a few of my properties are by NC state and with all the coronavirus, um, day-to-day -day updates and students not knowing if they're going, coming back to school, I was really curious about how he thought it would affect student housing and the investment of student housing. If it would go down or up in value, depending on who's going to be living there. So yeah, that was how we first connected. Uh, a little more guest background on Jeff is he is a multifamily student housing, senior housing, and self-storage self investor uh, in growing markets, uh, particularly now in the Southeast. He's got a couple of properties, I think, in Ohio, Florida, Atlanta, and we get into some of those in the episode. Uh, but it's a really cool story of how he transitioned into it and how he bought his first apartment building deal with very little experience. And it was, it was just an interesting story how he talks about that. Um, the main focus of the episode, kind of uh, as I alluded to before, is what he thinks is going to happen with student housing during the pandemic. Uh, it was interesting to get his perspective as someone that has a lot of student housing apartments and what he thinks the forecast will be and how he still thinks he can be successful with it, especially depending on where you are or what your investing strategy is. So his students are in areas that a lot of people are still coming back to, but he's also got some creative strategies to make sure that his buildings stay full and they have the right type of people in uh, just in case schools are not coming back the same way that um, they would any other year. So really interesting how he talks about that. Today's tangible tip has to do with email hygiene, uh, which is around subject lines of emails for people that you either work for or work with. And this is something I first heard from a great sales book, um, which I'm drawing a blank on the name from, oh, The Sales, sales Machine by Chet Holmes. For any salespeople out there, I highly recommend this book. But basically, he talked about how just to start in organizations, you need to have everyone on the same page, the same lingo, and the same cadence of communication. So something that he talked about was 
if your subject lines on emails are all over the place, it's really hard to find information when you need it. And it makes preparing to be successful that much harder. So some stuff that he mentioned in that book that I still use today is for any client, make sure the client name is in the email subject line along with yours. Um, the dates, if you can put subject lines, what people email you, just make it very clear what the topic is of that email thread. And sometimes email threads get started off these crazy subject lines or meeting follow-ups and they have nothing to do with the purpose of the email. And then following it becomes really hard if there's a lot of back and forth on it. Sometimes I'm on email threads that have 20 people and everyone's chiming in and we're all talking about something different. So another tip on this would be to break the email off and just have it set, set by set of what type of subject line you want to talk to. So that was today's tangible tip. Subject lines can make organi organizing your life that much easier. So that's today's tangible tip. Without any further ado, let's get into today's episode with Jeff Greenberg. All right, Jeff, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for being here. Well, thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. I was uh, very excited to dig into your story, especially during uh, coronavirus times where I'm sure you've been answering a lot of the same questions, but um, specifically in the world of student housing and life with potentially uh, college, at least being a little paused at the moment and seeing what that means. And, you know, a lot of people are not sure what the future will be, but um, before we get into all that and your story, um, you mind just giving our, our listeners a quick background of who you are and how you got started with real estate investing? Well, I'm Jeff Greenberg, I'm CEO of uh, Synergetic Investment Group. And I started in about 2007, um, which was not a good time to be looking at single family homes and decided to uh, get into commercial real estate. So I jumped in. Uh, first property I ever bought, other than my personal residence, was a 20-unit property that we actually syndicated. We brought a group of people in to, to buy that property. And then uh, we've just been moving along since then. Um, bought my first student housing in 2015. And then since then, I've bought uh, two more student housing properties, as well as uh, some multifamily properties. Got that's it. The, that's the that's the brief brief uh, view of it. Okay, cool. And and just to, I guess do a beginning and an end. Where are you at today with the business, and what has it grown to from that first syndication deal? Well, we have over a, a thousand units under our control right now, um, with that uh, three hundred beds of of student housing in, included in there. Um, but we've been on kind of a very slow path. Um, I haven't been in any big rush. I retired from my W-2 job uh, about three years ago. And, um, you know, we're not in a race with anybody. We're just enjoying uh, doing this and, uh, you know, working with investors and operating properties. Sure. Okay. Well, we'd love to get into your story and your day to day, but before we do that, um, we'd just like to hear how you actually made that transition. And if you could talk a little bit about that first deal, um, how did you find it? How did you finance it? Um, was it a success? And just the context of there's probably a lot of listeners here who would dream of doing something like that, or they're in a W2 job that maybe they don't necessarily love, or they're thinking about how can I transition to multifamily investing or syndicating? They're just not sure maybe how, or what's the one-on-one or the crash course. So could you just give a little detail on that first deal um, and how it went? Well, on the first deal, 
It was actually a broker that we got it from a broker. Um, we actually found the broker on LoopNet. Uh, we didn't find the property on LoopNet, but we had been working with the broker for a couple of years, um, making offers on a bunch of deals that he brought us uh, in the Texas area. It was in the South Texas, the Rio, the Rio Grande Valley, which is along um, the Mexican border in Texas. And uh, it, he finally brought us one, which was a 20 unit property. In reality, it was five uh, fourplexes. Uh, but it was being treated as 20 units, and that's how, how we uh, took it on and operated it. But it was, it was, it was scary as hell. Um, you know, we didn't have the money. We had never raised money. We had to raise uh, 350000 uh, and we had no clue on how we were going to do that. But uh, we managed to raise money from various, various people, mostly that I had never known prior to getting into real estate. And as far as the deal, there was a few mistakes on the deal. First of all, it was, it, it was a great property. It was, the property was three years old. Okay, so these fourplexes were three years old. They were 100% occupied. We were down the block from a hospital. Okay, that's the good part. The bad part was it was in a very slow growth community um, it was 100% occupied, so there wasn't a lot of uh, area to go up except on raising rents. And then when we found out that it was extremely difficult to raise the rents, uh, the only other option for increasing value was uh, a water bill back. They were already paying for electricity. And so there was no problems as all with the property. It was just very difficult to add value so we could get a better return for our investors. Um, so we held on to that property. The plan was five years. We went to six because we refused to sell it um, until we got our price. And then we finally got a decent price. Our investors did okay, um, but we didn't make any money on it because we had a preferred return. So we made a little tiny bit at the end and it was a great education. It was a six-year education uh, that we made very little money on, but uh, we made a lot of uh, good investor friends and uh, went on from there. I feel like I have to ask for, well, you had, you had business experience and success in a past career, but there may be people listening to this wondering, how can I raise money from a quote-unquote standstill or a first deal? Let's say I... I did solve for the equation of finding the deal. And I had a relationship with a broker who brought me something actually uh, a solid product, but I, I don't know the first thing about raising capital. Mm -hmm. What's your advice to that person? Okay. So first of all, on this one, we had, we had raised 350,000 and my business partner, she raised about half of it. Now the um, she raised it from people that she had associated with either her employers or fellow employees. Um, I think we had a, some of her friends in there. I didn't have any of that. Um, all of mine was from people that I had met at real estate meetups. Um, I don't believe at that time I had been on any podcasts. I was participating very heavily on bigger pockets. 
I was uh, answering questions, I was responding to people, I was communicating. So uh, a bunch of people came from, um, uh, were able to meet me through my communication through Bigger Pockets. There weren't a lot of podcasts back then, so I hadn't got on any other podcasts. I think Bigger Pockets was the first podcast I got on, and I actually got on that podcast after uh, after we we got that property. So I have to say that um, the people um, that I met were people that I had met through Bigger Pockets or through. Um, some meetups I went to, I was going to a lot of club meetings. I ran my own club as well. And that's where I raised the money and I was scared to death. Is the conversation for if someone's maybe built up a network and now they maybe have that deal. And let's say that I think that's great advice that they can join these groups and build out a network. If they're then maybe trying to have that first conversation, is the talk track more or less something to the effect of, or, or what would that talk track be? Or what were you saying then versus maybe what have you learned in the time you've raised capital for other deals that um, has helped you have that conversation with someone that you think may be interested in um, being a limited partner on one of your deals? The, the conversation has always been uh, talking about how excited am I, I am about the business how excited I am about the, the deal, the opportunity. Um, I don't go and ask people for money. I tell them about an opportunity. I tell them why it, uh, I think it's a great opportunity. And if they're interested, you know, they'll go and ask me, so oh, how do I get involved? Um, I don't like sales, but everything we do in life is sales. But I basically will talk to somebody about, you know, what I've learned in, in this business and what I've been doing. And if they're interested at all, they may ask a few questions. If they're not interested, then you go on to another conversation. But, you know, I, I tell people and I tell my students as well, everybody you talk to, everybody you meet, you know, you go and let them know about what exciting things you're doing, you know, uh, as far as, you know, talking to brokers, looking at markets, uh, analyzing properties, whatever it is uh, that you're doing, you let everybody know that you're doing it. And if they're curious at all, they'll ask you questions and then you could start telling them about things. But, you know, I don't, I don't like the hard sell. I don't like anybody pushing anything on, on anybody. So it's just more of letting people know. And if, and if they're excited about it, you know, of diversifying out of the stock market or, you know, finding a better use for their money, um, you know, they'll start asking the questions. One question I hear for from a lot of people that are considering taking on outside capital is to do syndication or joint venture. I'm curious if you had an opinion on the difference between the two or if, if you've done joint venture or if you've syndicated all your deals. Um, I haven't done a joint venture, but the issue with the joint venture I mean, if you bring somebody in on a, on a joint venture um, and they bring in all the capital and you do all the work, uh, that essentially ends up being um, an illegal transaction. Um, in a joint venture, you should have um, mutual control. They need to have um, some say-so in certain things. And that's fine if you've got someone that's willing to do that that will uh, work on deals with you. 
um, and they bring in the money and you do most of the work. But if, if they give you money, they provide the money and they don't do any of the work and there's an expectation of profit between you, um, then essentially that's the syndication. And if you haven't set the syndication up properly, you can be in trouble. Um, no, I haven't done a, a joint venture. That doesn't mean I wouldn't do a joint venture with somebody. Um, but you know, if it's somebody that I trusted, I, I would work with them. But all my deals have been syndication. I like um, to have that control, especially uh, since typically I would have the expertise. So I wanna be able to be in control of the deal. On the investor side of it, they have to decide whether or not they're willing to give up control because essentially they're, they're losing the control of their money. So they have to trust uh, whoever it is, whoever the custodian of their money is going to be. So it's mm -hmm. essentially your, your difference is, is a control issue on the JV and syndication. Got it, that makes total sense. Is there, so let's transition a little bit here. I, I know you've done now more student housing and that seemed to be where your focus has shifted and um, you've done more deals. So if you could bring us up to speed on what deals you've done since that first one or what the progression was to what you're doing now, and then maybe dig into what your current focus and your current day-to-day -day business model is. Mm -hmm. Well, from, from that property, we ended up with a property in, uh, in Houston, <clears throat> which we got at a steal. Um, we had a five-year plan on it. It was a 62 unit. Uh, we bought it for 1.3. The plan was to sell it in five years for anywhere from 2.7 to 2.3. And then in year three, the market in Houston at that time was uh, booming. And my broker told me that uh, I should sell in year three. And I told him, I said, okay, if you can get me 2.6, I'll sell. And considering we had planned on a 2.3 or 2.1 sale. And so he got me a 2.7 sale. And so that was a phenomenal one. Um, I learned that I needed to put more safeguards into my offering that uh, when my investors get a 40% annualized return, I should have some bumps in there that we would, that we would get a better cut of the deal. So that was uh, very good for my investors. Uh, we did okay, but uh, certainly we gave them a lot more than we had uh, uh, expected to do. Um, we went on to that and got a small, um, multifamily a student housing in Georgia. This was a distressed asset, 30% uh, occupied. And um, we've, we've now got that one up to 95% uh, occupied. But that was, that was a good deal. That was, that was actually a 19, 1999 build. So it's not that old, but that's a great property. We're, we're either going to refinance that one now or we're in the process of selling it, but it's excellent property. Um, even with COVID, we're, we're gonna have that one filled up. And then we, we bought a couple more student housing, one in Oxford, Ohio. Oh, excuse me, I, I'm sorry. The Oxford, Ohio was actually the first student housing. 
Um, we bought that one in, uh, I think it was 2015. And then 2016, we got the, uh, the one in, um, in, in Georgia. And then we picked another one up in Arizona. And then recently, we just picked up a 225-unit uh, property in, uh, in, uh, in Texas, Amarillo, Texas. And, and those, those are our, some of our, our, our current holdings that we're working on. That's really interesting, especially in the sense of, I, I want to talk about student housing, but the thing that stands out to me from that is that you have picked properties in a lot of different markets as opposed to going to one and scouring that area only. How did you think about, well, that strategy, but also how do you decide on an area or a market um, to, to know that the, the market fundamentals support your business model? Well, you know, I don't know if, uh, if we did it the the best way um essentially we were just looking at all a lot of deals and uh we would look at a deal and then then decide if we liked the market um that's probably not the most efficient way to do it just because that's the way we did it doesn't mean it's the way i would recommend um you're you're better off becoming an expert in a market um finding finding a market and just being immersing uh, in that market and learning about it and then looking for the properties. We, we were more opportunistic and, uh, you know, if, if looking at hindsight, it probably slowed our growth that we probably could have done better if we, you know, became an expert in a, a particular market. And were these broker deals that you had a relationship with a company that were sending you these, or how did you find these deals in all different parts of the country? Yeah, they were all broker deals except for the Oxford one, the Oxford, Ohio. I had a uh, college intern that was working for me, and um, he wouldn't tell me where he found the deal until after we closed. Um, it was it, it was out near Miami University in, in Oxford, Ohio, and, and once we closed, he told me he found it on LoopNet, but. Uh, the property had gone through uh, two other buyers prior to us, so the uh, seller was softened, and we actually got it for quite a bit below what the other offers were. So we ended up getting a good deal off of it. So there are deals on LoopNet. You know, it just uh, you know at the right price they may be good deals, and sometimes it takes you know a, a seller that you know, has given up hope of getting their, the price they want and uh, have, have uh, eased up a little bit. And that's what we were able to do. Interesting. You do hear a lot of times that LoopNet is not a place to find deals, but you also hear that it's a place to find brokers. And you mentioned that on your first deal, but it's funny to hear that, that your, your uh, intern found it and didn't even want to tell you where he found it on LoopNet. Maybe it would have changed at least the perception of the deal a little bit, but I guess for someone starting out right now, or maybe they've done a couple deals and they may have done uh, a couple single families or they want to make a leap into the larger multifamily space or student space or any type of commercial space. And they're trying to figure out how to one, find deals or two, develop relationships. Um, what's your advice for the person looking to do that? Or where do you think they get it wrong most of the time when they try to do that? Well, the thing is, it's going to depend on what size deals they're looking for. If you're looking for the ones that are in the mom and pop range, 
you know, under 70 units or, you know, the smaller 10 units, 20 units. Um, you know, the, the LoopNet or Crexi, uh, you know, C-R-E-X-I, um, that's popped up. Uh, I see that popping into my mailbox all the time. Uh, for the smaller deals, uh, that might be a good place to go because your mom and pops that don't want to go with a national broker and have tons of people coming after them, uh, sometimes that's their place to be listing uh, that. Uh, when you start getting the bigger stuff, you know, most of that stuff is all done, um, you know, through, through brokers. And um, you can meet the brokers, you know, through LoopNet. That's, that's a way of meeting brokers, as we've all heard. Uh, I, I think those are good, term, good um, avenues to, to do it. You know, if you go on to LoopNet, you find um, a broker with some deals, you could analyze that deal. And then, you know, if, if that's not a deal, you ask the broker for other deals. You don't just go with that one deal that they happen to have there, is now you start a communication with that broker and you say, well, this one doesn't work because of this reason or these reasons. And so you could show the broker that you have some knowledge, you know how to analyze deals. And now you can try to get the broker to start uh, finding you, you know, some better deals. Right now, I would think that, you know, um, brokers are, you know, definitely looking for buyers right now. Um, you know, the, every, everything's quieted down, but you know, everybody talks about getting a relationship with a broker. And this totally is a relationship business. Um, there's so many other people out there, you have to stand out somehow. And your relationship with the broker is, is imperative. And an example to that is the broker that uh, got me the deal in uh, the first deal, the 20 unit property, was the same one that got me the Houston deal. And he went and uh, did a cold call uh, in Houston on a 150 unit property. And um, he, asked, he happened to see the seller there, or the, yeah, the owner, and asked if they would sell that property. And he's, they said, no, I don't wanna sell this property, but I do have another one that I'll sell you. And then he went over to that property that we eventually bought the 62 unit and my broker negotiated on price for a little bit. And he, he called me up. I was the first call he made. Now he had relationships with people that could have paid all cash for that property. And he had people that he had had relationships for a longer period of time than he had with me. And I'm still not quite sure why he called me. But he called me, told me about the deal. I said, send me the numbers. I looked at the numbers. I called him back and I said, get a, you know, write up a contract. And within a day, um, we were under contract on that deal. But it was all because of um, relationships. And then when I, I talked to other brokers later on after we, we, um, after we bought that deal, and I said, oh, wow, we didn't even know this was under that it was uh, uh, up for sale. <laughs> he said it wasn't. It was, it was never on the market. I mean, that was the most off-market property you could get. I mean, it wasn't being marketed, it was nothing. It was my, my broker and his cold call happened to be lucky. And he brought that luck to me and that was, 
that was great. But, you know, if I didn't know him or have that opportunity, he would have gone to somebody else. Yeah, that's really cool. Just before we move on to the student housing stuff, do you have any tips for someone that's looking to, or not, not anyone else, because it's all personal. So I'm just curious for you, how have you thought about developing relationships with brokers or what's your style been with it? Well, a lot of it in the past was, you know, um, you know, first of all, finding the brokers and then finding, you know, talking to them and, and uh, finding some common threads and, and getting them to know you that you're going to be able to close. The most difficult um, thing is trying to convince them that you're going to close on the deal. And um, I've had students go out and come back and say, oh, hey, can you get me a proof of funds? And I said, if they're asking you for a proof of funds, you blew it. Okay. They don't ask for proof of funds on commercial deals unless they don't think that you know what the hell you're doing, that you messed up and within the conversation and now they're asking for proof of funds. These are syndicated deals. You're going to go out and ask all of your, your investors, you know, for proof of funds. That just doesn't work in the commercial world. I think in the last 12 years, I may have been asked that once, maybe twice, if, I, if I'm sure, um, you know, about proof of funds. And usually, you know, I just told them, I said, look, I work with a group of investors. I have other investors. I, I'm not going to sit there and ask for their proof of funds you know, until, until I know exactly who's going to be in the deal, you know, and, you know, usually, you know, either the broker is going to say, Hey, the seller wants proof of funds. Otherwise we won't talk to you. And I say, okay, I'm out of here. Um, you know, or they say, okay, okay, we'll send it to you. But, um, you know, it's, it's definitely finding some relationship. This particular broker that brought me those two deals, um, he, He's a fellow Californian and um, he moved to Texas because he felt that was a much better place to run his business. And so we kind of hit it off on that. And every time I am in that part of town uh, down in uh, McAllen, Texas, you know, I, I, I stay at his house and uh, we're friends now and we, uh, we communicate once in a while and uh, send jokes back and forth. But so we've become friends and sure. Uh, I still tell them to find me some more deals down there, but uh, that's been a little tough. That's cool. Got it. So it's, it's become more than a work relationship. You guys are actually friends and he knows that you're serious and you'll close on deals if he brings them to you. So it's a very good point about the proof of funds. I haven't heard that before, but right there, it kind of says what you need to know. So uh, I'd love to hear just from an overview of what you're doing today and I, I know student housing is what you've shifted to on a couple of deals, but is that your, your main focus now? Is it just a part of your portfolio or um, how do you think about, I guess, the outlook of where you'll be investing in the next couple of years? Um, I do like student housing. And the main reason I, I was focusing on student housing, I say was um, because I'm not completely on, on student housing. I mean, I will look at student housing, um, but what I like about student housing is one, there was less competition. There's less people looking at student housing. I get people that are doing great things with multifamily and they'll send me a student housing. And I say, here, this, this doesn't fit into my criteria and, and I'll look it over. Um, so it was more um, 
more desperation as far as finding deals that I was doing more student housing. It's also uh, a lot easier for people to mess student housing up, which gives us an opportunity to fix it. And that was, um, with my Georgia deal, that was what it was. Um, the management that was put in place on that property was inappropriate. And they went down to 30% occupied and half the people in there weren't, uh, weren't even students. And it was actually 48% occupied, but only 30% were paying. Um, a lot of drug use going on. Uh, you know, it was, it was a horrible situation, but it was a fairly new building. 1999 is not bad. And, um, you know, when we took it over, we just, you know, booted everybody out that wasn't paying and, and wasn't a student and, and put a bunch of money into the interiors, cleaning things up and ended up with a, a great property and it's it's a great property now mm -hmm. so that's the the thing with student housing is it's unique and a lot of people are afraid of it um we've always been saying that student housing is recession resistant well we had no clue a pandemic was going to come around and um you know make a lot of changes um i feel bad for those people that own student housing in areas where the schools are going to be totally online. Um, that's going to be a real difficult situation uh, if they can't find a way to get the students uh, to stay there. Um, the universities were around that were near um, are pretty much doing uh, partial online. So even if the student has to come in, you know, a couple times a week, they still need a place to live. So, uh, that's good. Um, that one university in, in Georgia, they're actually wanted to master lease uh, one of our buildings. And um, I, I guess they're trying to uh, reduce the density uh, in their dorms. So they wanted to, to master lease. And uh, we, couldn't, we couldn't agree on terms. So we just said, hey, those people that you can't house, send them over here. <laughs> so yeah, uh, that's not too bad. Yeah, well, they wanted to, they wanted to only lease it for one semester, and wow. I said I don't want it for one semester. I want you've got to, you take the risk and master lease for both semesters. It's right. very difficult to lease things up in January. Totally. Um, you know, so we said you know take it all or nothing, and um, so they've decided they can only do the one semester. So fine, send us your overflow. Those people that you can't house, just send them over to us, and we'll take care of them. Yeah, that's cool. Oh, that's fine. Um, so you you asked about you know where I am now. I'm in a situation now that uh, for all of my deals, 99% uh, of the funds were raised by me, uh, except you know on my first deal, my partner got half of it, and I've had a few deals where I've had some other people uh, raising the funds, and I've had deals where I ran the entire deal like the, uh, the uh, Ohio one where I just had the intern working with me. I did the entire deal um, because I had, we had uh, recently broke up with a partnership. I've had deals where I've had maybe eight GPs on it. I've had deals where we've had two GPs on it. And so I know the ins and outs of syndication. And I've, I've done a shift where I'm going more towards just doing the fundraising. So I know a lot of great people. I know a lot of great sponsors. And so right now I'm just looking at those sponsors and saying, hey, 
let me know if you need some money raised and I will come in as a partner uh, and help you raise money. And that way, that's the one piece I can focus on and um, not do all the other stuff. I've done the broker relationships. I've done the, uh, the analyzing a hundred deals to find a deal. I've done all of that stuff. And I'm focusing right now on raising funds. Um, I'm also doing some mentoring and so I'm working with some of my students, but um, that's where my focus is right now is networking, uh, getting more relationships. I've been on over 35 podcasts, so I talk to a lot of people. And, you know, raising funds, that way the quality of my life is, is a lot better. I just get to talk to people and meet people and it's a lot more fun. No, that's just so interesting that you've come full cycle with it, realized what you like to do, what you're good at doing, what might be a little bit less stress, but also that you can control that part of it and the other part can come to you. So that is really interesting to, uh, to hear that you've transitioned to that. So um, thank you for that overview. Very interesting. I'm sure people are going to get tons of value out of that. I did. I was just jotting down some notes. Um, but if it's cool with you, we will move to the show wind down, just some rapid fire operational questions uh, before we get you out of here. Okay, just the, just one point that I'm uh, going into now is is we're looking at uh, creating a fund and mm -hmm. that way we can, uh, people can uh, come in and invest um, with us and then uh, we could actually have a diversified portfolio within that fund and uh, when we get that set up, then uh, passive investors would have the opportunity to not just be in one deal, but be in multiple deals. And the service that we end up providing is doing the vetting, the vetting of the deal sponsor, the vetting of the deal, which is something that the inexperienced uh, passive investor may not have the time, may not have the knowledge or experience to be properly to be able to properly vet uh, any of that. And so we're gonna be providing that service to, to help people out and to help them invest wisely. So that's very that's interesting. Where okay. we're transitioning to. That is very cool. We'll link all that, but yeah, that sounds like it would be a big help to a lot of people that just aren't sure where to place their money or if they're not experienced enough, they think they, can recognize a syndicator or a deal, but maybe they just can't and they need a place to one, learn the business and learn how to do that, but also get their return and, and be part of a deal. So that's really interesting. We will link that. Um, so cool. I guess just then moving into last part of the show, go through some operational questions of how you uh, manage your time and, and prioritize yourself. Um, you mentioned it a little before, but um, any specific strategies you like to think about with networking and meeting people and staying top of mind with people? Well, the networking, and this is, this is uh, in process a lot of, um, some of it is. I mean, I've been going to uh, meetups prior to COVID. Um, I run two clubs currently. In fact, I'm just starting up a third, but I uh, run two and I've typically gone to at least another four each month. Um, hmm. Obviously with COVID, I'm doing that all virtual, but I have been doing a lot of meetups. As I said earlier, um, I've been on, I've, I've lost track of how many I've, 
you know, probably about 30, 30 or 35 different podcasts. So I get my name out there. I try to still get on bigger pockets, which I don't get on as often as possible, but just, um, you know, getting myself out there. Um, I, I also, you know, as I said, do some mentoring. So I do, you know, get my name uh, out there some. Any advice or systems you use to plan your days or your time to make sure you're being most productive or you're working on the right activities in your business? Well, I struggle with that. <laughs> um, I, I do um, uh, use uh, the Google Calendar and uh, that kind of uh, schedules my day. So I look at the Google, when I get up in the morning, I look at my calendar and I see what, how, what kind of day I'm going to have. <laughs> um, but I do, you know, typically uh, before I go to bed or uh, make some notes on what I need to accomplish the next day. And um, that's, you know, that's probably most of it. Uh, I do try to uh, keep email from, uh, from devouring my time. But usually what I do is first thing in the morning, I go through and start deleting everything that I don't want to look at. Mm -hmm. And then I could come back and go and dive into those um, that need attention. And also at that time, I could see if there's anything that needs attention immediately. Got it. Awesome. Any hobbies, interests, random stuff you like to do when you're not doing real estate? Um, I'm a, a road biker and I've been trying to get a, a hundred miles in a week. Um, so I've been doing that. I got a bunch of grandkids. I enjoy spending time with them. Uh, I just built a tree house for a couple <laughs> of my grandkids. So, uh, you know, that's, that's probably my hobby is my family. Okay. Awesome. Where can people learn more about you? Well, you can uh, find me at the Synergetic Investment Group. So the website is www.synergeticig.com. Or you could also spell it out, synergeticinvestmentgroup.com. Uh, you can get me at jeff at synergeticig.com. Mm -hmm. And again, that's S-Y-N-E-R-G-E-T-I-C-I-G.com. Okay, cool. And if anyone's watching and has real spelling challenges, uh, the video with the background has the name on it. So you can just grab it there, but it will be in the show notes. Um, awesome, Jeff. Thank you so much for that. Uh, the, the last question of the show is how we like to promote anyone that's looking to network or bring value to other people. Uh, a lot of people I'm sure reach out to you for virtual coffee or pick your brain. Um, if someone wanted to start off the relationship right now by trying to bring you value with something, is there anything that they could do to do that or anything you may need help with at the moment um, that they could start the relationship off with? Uh, the, you know, my main thing is, is to uh, network uh, with um, potential high net worth individuals. Mm -hmm. um, I'm always looking for that. Um, I suppose the other thing is, is, I am looking for someone that might be interested in, in writing copy for me. That's an area that I need to, I think I need to get deeper into is um, um, reading a lot of uh, commercial real estate, multifamily information, and then editorializing uh, those um, documents, putting it up on my website and putting, doing some blogging. And, and I could use some help with that. Um, mm -hmm. I procrastinate a little bit on that end of it. But, you know, just to, to get my, uh, 
my opinions out there. So mm -hmm. if someone was interested in writing articles and doing that kind of stuff, uh, uh, I'd be happy to talk to them. All right. Awesome. Well, Jeff, I just want to say thank you for coming on and walking us through your journey, some of your learnings and uh, what you've used to be successful and navigate um, Corona times and what's coming ahead. But uh, any last or parting word just before we hop off? No, I mean, it's, it's a great business. Um, it takes persistence. Uh, you know, it takes guidance. I think people should, you know, find somebody that's doing what they want to do and then find a way to uh, be of help to them as you kind of alluded to in your, in your last question. Um, you know, it, it's, it's not a one person sport. This is, you know, a team sport. Um, find, find someone that's, that's doing it and, and partner up with them. And, and in your first deal that you get in with somebody, you may, you know, get a little tiny itty bitty piece, or you may not make much money at all, but you have to think about your education. Um, you know, you get educated by working with someone that, uh, that's been there and done that and made a lot of the mistakes. Couldn't agree with that more. Best way to learn at the beginning and you don't need to own the entire deal yourself or make a ton of money at the beginning. You're just learning. So Jeff, thank you so much again for coming on. I want to wish you all the best of luck in 2020 and beyond and uh, just keep it up. It's, it's awesome to watch. Well, thank you very much for having me. This is great. Hey, you millennial millionaire. Do you want more? Then head to the Millennial Millionaires Through Real Estate Facebook group, where there are tons of step-by-step -step walkthroughs, tools, templates, and free networking to help you achieve financial freedom through real estate. And if you want Jonathan to help you personally reach your goals, then feel free to set up a one-on-one -on -one call in the link below or message him on any social media platform and apply to, well, work with Jonathan.